Remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text from Romans 3, starting in verse 29 to the end of the chapter. Give your ear to the Word of God. Or is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what's it mean that you've been saved freely by God's grace as a gift? As Paul puts it, what are the implications of the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming, especially in the previous paragraph in verses 21 to 26? Specifically, what does it mean that you've been redeemed from your sins, from your enslavement, from your bondage to sin and corruption through the cross of Jesus Christ, whom God publicly set forth as a propitiation, Paul says, as as an atonement, atoning sacrifice, in his blood. What, what do you make of the fact that you've received the gift of salvation through faith, as Paul emphasizes, and through faith alone, apart from any work you've ever done, apart from any work you'll ever do? Paul explains the implications of this gospel in the final paragraph of Romans 3. In verses 27 to 30, he says that free redemption means Two things. First, as we saw last week in verses 27 and 28, it means there's no room for boasting, no bragging allowed. The gospel excludes spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is what Paul addresses there in 27 and 28. You've got nothing to brag about. Nothing to pat yourself on the back for. Nothing to offer up to God. Accept your sin. One of the Puritan prayers in the Valley of Vision says, Remember, O my soul, thou hast nothing of thine own but sin. Nothing to move God to be gracious or to continue His grace toward thee. So even your, even your faith is a gift 100% from God. When Lazarus was raised from the dead... He contributed nothing to his resurrection and had nothing to boast about afterward. You too, fellow Christian, contributed nothing to your spiritual resurrection. The old hymn puts it well, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And God enables you to do even that. The gospel, you see, is boast. It excludes boasting. It destroys boasting. It slays the inner 
bragging dragon, which means it excludes all forms of pride, all manifestations of pride. Pride, as we saw, is the primordial sin. Satan's rebellion was fueled by, fueled by pride. The devil wanted for himself the glory that was due God alone. And then after his fall, he tempted mankind to follow him, follow him in this kind of self-exalting pride. According to Satan's gospel, the fruit from the forbidden tree promised glory, self-glory. It promised to make Adam and Eve the, like the Most High God. So they took and they ate and they ate desperately hoping it would satisfy their new craving that they had recently cultivated for self-exaltation. Now last week we considered that everyone is created to be a boaster, a glorifier, a worshiper, but you weren't created to boast in yourself. You weren't you're not the center. You were created by the center. You were designed to boast in God, to praise God, to exalt God, to magnify Christ. Boasting in self is miserable. It enslaves you to the praise of men. It's exhausting because propping yourself up in this way is too much to keep up with. Making sure you maintain your image you know, how smart you are, how good you are, how strong you are, how beautiful you are, how spiritual you are. On the other hand, forgetting about yourself and boasting in God generates joy. It fosters freedom and it gives rise to rest. Self-forgetfulness is the path to lasting joy, genuine freedom, and real rest. So, so the first thing that your free salvation means is that the gospel is boast-free. Or, or perhaps it would be better to say that if you've been saved by the gospel, you ought to be boast-free. That's the only rational position to take. If, if you're fully sane, if, if your mind's working the way it ought to, the way it was, if it's working properly, you know, if you're entirely rational, you would forget about yourself and your mind and your heart would be brimming, overflowing with thoughts about God. So there's no room for self. So that's the first implication of the gospel. It excludes spiritual pride. If you want to meditate on that more, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon on verses 27 and 28. The second implication of the gospel, the implication will we'll spend our time thinking about today, really a one-point sermon, is that it excludes theological pride. There's obviously overlap here. We're going to focus in on theological pride. Paul makes this point by affirming in verses 29 and 30 that there's one way, one path for everybody to be saved. And anybody can be saved by trusting in Jesus to forgive them of their sins, to make them right with God. That's the foundation for his argument. Now, but before we dive into verses 29 and 30, let's make sure we're aware of the pastoral problem that Paul is facing and addressing. Even though Paul had never been to Rome, he, was, he, he had become acutely aware of a situation that had developed in the churches there. 
this problem was a big part of the reason he decided to write to the Roman Christians in the first place. As with most churches, the, the problems that the churches in Rome faced had to do with their history, and it went all the way back to their founding. So let's review how the Roman churches were planted and what had happened during the last 25 years or so. Paul's writing this letter in A.D. 57, give or take a year, probably 57. And there had been Christians in Rome for well over two decades at this point. Now the first Christians in Rome were Jews. Jews who had traveled down to Jerusalem in the year A.D. 30 for the annual feast of Pentecost. You remember what happened there. In the spring of A.D. 30 was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Jerusalem. And following that, thousands of Jews from all over the world who had gathered there for Pentecost in Jerusalem, thousands, thousands of them were converted to Christ under the ministry of the apostles. Acts 2 says there were Jews present in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, including, it says, from the city of Rome. Now, some of these Italian Jews from Rome converted to Christ while there in Jerusalem, but eventually they returned to Rome and they established churches. And this explains why, why we have multiple congregations in Rome by the time Paul's writing this letter in AD 57. And it's not hard to imagine how things played out among the Christians in Rome from AD 30 or so or whenever they moved back to A.D. 57. Over the decades, as the congregations in Rome grew, there came to be more Gentiles than Jews in the churches. After all, Rome is made up primarily of Gentiles. And so the evangelistic efforts brought in the Gentiles. So even though the believing Jews who had even though the believing Jews brought the gospel back to Rome in the 30s, by AD 57, Gentiles outnumbered Jews. And we know this back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul made it clear at the beginning of his letter that the recipients of this letter are apparently predominantly Gentile Christians. Gentiles, he says, who have been called by Jesus Christ. So he, he specifically, explicitly mentions them because they make up the majority of the congregations. Now, the result was racial tension in the Roman congregations, and this was causing turmoil and resentment among the brethren. Not completely unlike the situation that developed in Rome with some racial, I mean in Jerusalem, with the racial tension between the Greek-speaking Hebrews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, I should say. This is a different kind, but, but similar. So later in Romans, Paul is going to instruct the Gentiles on how to relate to their Jewish brothers and sisters. You know, they, they, they need to be exhorted too. But here in chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, Paul's instruction and exhortation is directed at the Jewish believers, the, the religious types, the ones with theological heritage. And, it, and he's addressing how they are to relate to the Gentile members of the body of Christ. Paul writes in verse 29, Or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not indeed the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And here's the basis. Interesting basis here. Since there is one God, and the second part of the basis, who will declare righteous the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through the same faith. So you see how he's leveling the playing field. The Jews were tempted to believe, and this temptation didn't just completely go away when they got saved and came, in, came to Christ. They, they were tempted to believe that the Gentiles were only saved, really, if they became Jewish. They were sort of second-class citizens of humanity because they weren't Jews. And, and many first-century Jews were racial, spiritual, and theological snobs in this way. They assumed that God was favorable toward them because they were Jews. They had a monopoly on God. And this comes out all over the place in the, in the writings of the Second Temple era, before Christ and after Christ. Paul attacks this mentality, which existed in some form, even in the, the, among the Christian's the Christian Jews in Rome, he attacks this theological pride in verse 29. No, Paul says, God is not the God of Jews only. He's just as much the God of Gentiles through faith in Jesus as he is the God of the Jews. And then in verse 30, Paul appeals to the Shema. Now, those of you who enjoy digging into the Bible and, and eating meat will enjoy seeing what Paul is doing here, how he's appealing to the Shema. Now, but first, we might need to know what the Shema is, that the uh, to the Jews, even to this day, the Shema is the most well-known and most important Bible passage from the Old Testament, from their scriptures. Shema is the Hebrew word that means hear, to hear. The, the Shema refers to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 4, which begins, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema. And, and to understand what Paul's doing in Romans 3.30, you need to see how he's drawing on this famous, from this famous text in Deuteronomy 6. His, his stratagem is brilliant and clever. Now, Paul has just asked a question. Actually, a two-part question. Is God the God of Jews only? Isn't he the God of Gentiles also? And now look at his answer, his own answer, at the end of verse 29 and beginning of verse 30. Yes, of Gentiles also, since there is one God. Since the Shema. One God, language from the Shema. So do you see what Paul's doing? He's taking the most famous, the most famous Jewish Bible verse and he's turning it against the Jews, specifically against those Jews who would exclude Gentiles from the full benefits of salvation in Christ. The Jews believed that the Shema was their property. It belonged to them alone. That was in their scriptures, just as God belonged to them alone. Paul's flipping that on its head. No, the Shema and the God of the Shema belong to the Gentiles equally, just as much. Gentiles who believe in Jesus no less than Jews who believe in Jesus. There is indeed one God. 
I, I agree with you. As a fellow Jew, Paul says, I, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, and this one God, because there is one God, he's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have a, a separate God, a different God. He says everyone by faith in Jesus. The same faith. That's why, that's why I translated that second, at, at the end of the verse there where he says uh, that he declares righteous the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through the same faith. There's an article there, he's, he's highlighting that, and it, that it means the same, he's, it's the same thing. By the, by the first century, the Mosaic law had become a wall, a partition, an impenetrable barrier between the Jews and everyone else. Gentiles were told that they must put themselves under the law and become Jew, Jewish pros, you know, proselytes before they could be saved. They had to submit to circumcision and the law. Paul's combating this prideful theological thinking, and the verse he's using to combat it is the verse that all Jews learned as children and recited every day. One God for all. Now, how does this connect to our, to, to our situation, to our day? Is there any relevance here for us? It's, it seems like a, a passage that meant something in the first century. But what do we do with it? It might seem that Paul's argument here doesn't have much application. After all, we're, we're Gentiles, right? Uh, we welcome all peoples. We, we are among the Gentiles. Uh, this, this problem isn't really a problem anymore, at least in our context. Discriminating on the basis of ethnicity or cultural background is not one of our besetting sins, is it? I, I mean, I highly doubt that anyone here has ever been guilty of telling someone they need to become Jewish, right? To be accepted by God. But many of us, surely most of us, Probably all of us have been guilty of theological pride. The spiritual problem that Paul is addressing here is the same core issue he was addressing up in 27 and 28. The problem is still a kind of religious pride. The Jews thought they were intrinsically better than the Gentiles. And they had the scriptures to prove it. They had an entire corpus of of scriptures that established this, or at least they thought they did. They believed that the Old Testament was a testament to how important they were to God. They were the chosen people. They, they were the light, the bright spot on planet Earth. It confirmed their theological advantage over everyone else. That's why Paul uses one of their own Bible verses, even the most treasured one, to prove that they're no better. But don't make the mistake of thinking that theological pride is just a Jewish problem. If you, if you attend a church like this one, you likely believe that theology is important. You hold it in high regard. You've probably put a lot of thought into what you believe on a lot of different issues and why you believe it. And you might like to argue your position because you're so passionate about it. You, you hold true doctrine in very high regard. Most of us in this room also hold to beliefs that we didn't hold to 
5 or 10 or 30 years ago. We may may have read our way into our current convictions on a lot of significant issues. Perhaps some of you joined this church or are visiting this church because you want the Reformed theology and the reverent worship that we teach and practice here. All of that is is well and good. If, If that's you, you're in the right place. But beware of the theological pride that can creep in to our midst. Theological pride is a besetting sin of Reformed Christians. Beware of your tendency to think that you're better or more pleasing to God than other Christians who may be confused about something that you've got right. To think that you're better because of what you know or how you worship. We can easily become like the Christians at Corinth. The Corinthian Christians who who wrote to Paul saying, All of us possess knowledge. They they were proud of their superior theological knowledge. And they, they told Paul about it. All of us possess knowledge, they said. We don't have the letter in which they wrote that to Paul, but Paul quotes from it in, in 1 Corinthians, which, his, which is his response to their letter. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, yes, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. And then he, then he goes on to say, this, this knowledge does what? Puffs up. But love builds up. Who among us can say that theological knowledge has never puffed us up? Most, most Reformed Christians, and I, I'll say especially us Reformed men, I think, would do well to memorize 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and recite it before every theological conversation. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Imagine if every theological debate was uh, exemplified that verse. That'd be good. Now, of course, theological pride doesn't only show itself in theological debates or when we're talking to people that we disagree with. It often expresses itself just among ourselves, among those that we agree with. Consider how you talk about believers, other believers, with different theological convictions. When you talk about their eschatology or their view of baptism or their worship services or their view of children, all important things, when you do it, do you, do you exude humility? Or do you make fun and despise and condescend? When you talk about the praise bands or the man-centered theology or the sensationalistic eschatology of other Christians and other churches, do you speak about it with a haughty spirit, a condescending attitude, a critical tone, a sort of holier-than-thou arrogance? Even the language you use in talking about it can, can can show where you're coming from. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. That's, he never does that. He doesn't look down on confused believers. Rather, he has compassion on us. He doesn't look down on confused believers. He has compassion on us. 
Now, I know, that, I know the temptation all too well. I've seen this kind of superiority complex in my own heart and in my words. And I've seen it in others here as well. And I've noticed in myself and in others that it's especially tempting to be critical of whatever theological heritage that you came out of, for some of us maybe. Rather than giving thanks for how God used your previous Christian community, church, to to bring you to where you are now, you, you may belittle that church or that theological uh, system or heritage because it wasn't what it should have been. I've had to repent of that sin myself, that kind of pride myself. And repentance is in order when, when you find this going on in your heart or in your mouth. Repent of your theological pride. Let's all repent of our theological arrogance. Repent of being puffed up with knowledge rather than building up with love. After all, is God the God of reformed Christians only? Is he not indeed the God of the Baptists and Charismatics and Dispensationalists and Lutherans and Arminians also? Yes, of the Baptists and Charismatics and Dispensationalists and Lutherans and Arminians also. Since there is one God who will declare righteous the reformed by faith. And the Baptists and Charismatics and Dispensationalists and Lutherans and Arminians through the same faith, apart from works, apart from anything any of us have to offer at any level. We should emulate George Whitfield, the reformed preacher from the 18th century. I've told the story of George Whitfield within the last year and John Wesley, but it's worth retelling. You can hardly preach on this topic or this text and not tell this story. The two most prominent preachers of the 1700s, without question, were John Wesley and George Whitfield. Wesley was an ardent Arminian, and Whitfield was a committed Calvinist. And these two men were critical of each other's theology and preaching ministry, especially in their younger years, but eventually they learned to respect each other, though many of their followers failed to, to learn this, failed to learn how to respect the, the other side. And the story is told of one of Whitfield's followers. This follower was apparently harboring bitterness toward Wesley, gripped by resentment, This follower said to Whitfield one day, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? In response, Whitfield said, no, we won't see him in heaven. And you can imagine the smug satisfaction that Whitfield's follower uh, felt when when, when Whitfield agreed with him that Wesley won't be in heaven. But then Whitfield continued, we won't see Wesley in heaven Because he will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. And you can imagine the disappointment Whitfield's follower experienced when Whitfield said that. Whitfield said this for the spiritual benefit of his proud pupil. But he also believed it. 
you, you see this in his writings. He had, a, he had learned to count others, even people who were critical of him and his ministry and his theology, he had learned to count them as more significant than himself, which is what Paul says to do in Philippians 2, 3. At one point, when Wesley appeared to be near death, Whitfield wrote him a letter that contained these words. A radiant throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. Yonder he stands with a massive crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels. End quote. I don't know if Whitfield would have been able to say that sort of thing in his younger years as a young man, but in his wiser, older, more sanctified years, he had come to know his lowness, his depravity, his spiritual poverty. He didn't allow his Reformed theology to elevate him above Wesley. If you look down on others because of their inferior theology, all you're doing is turning your theology whether it's right or wrong, you're turning your theology into a dung of heap that you now need to repent of. Dung heap is what Paul calls anything that we value or boast in more than Christ and the cross. With Paul, Whitfield came to see himself as the foremost sinner saved by sheer grace. As he grew in Christ, he saw more clearly and believed more deeply what was true all along, that, that he didn't deserve the favor of God that had been shown to him. And there was no one more undeserving of salvation than Mr. Whitfield. He was so gripped by the freeness of the gospel. He was so convinced that he had done nothing to merit it, that he was able to think of himself and his theology with sober judgment. In humility, he counted others, even a, even a flaming Arminian like Wesley, as more significant than himself. Let's, let's just assume for a, a very brief moment that you're right about every one of your theological convictions. If that's the case, what do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Of course, the truth of the matter is that you're wrong about some things. Probably more things than you think possible. I am too. I'd like to think that if I knew what they were, you know, which theological conclusions I was wrong about that I'd changed my mind, but I'm not even sure of that, knowing me. None of us is as sharp or as reasonable as we'd like to think. The most theologically keen, most theologically astute person on earth knows infinitesimally as much as he will when he gets to heaven, when he sees Jesus face to face and possesses what Paul calls full knowledge. Even the Apostle Paul was looking, he says, through a glass, darkly, dimly, while he was on the earth. He only knew in part, 
as he puts it. But now he sees Jesus face to face and he knows fully even as he is fully known. This is Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 13. Someday you will see clearly and possess full knowledge as, as Paul does. But while you're on earth, you're, you, you've got nothing to be proud of when it comes to your theological acumen. Your theological knowledge is dim and partial at best. So is mine. The Jews needed the Gentiles to be below them. This was a psychological need. They needed to be better than the Gentiles. They needed this so badly that they twisted Scripture until it confirmed their superiority complex. And what we need to understand is that their theological pride stemmed from an insecure craving for self-glory, self-praise, self-exaltation, self-importance that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God calls Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians alike to theological humility. He calls you, Reformed Christian, to a theological humility that makes no provision for contempt or prideful scorn or condescending jokes about other believers. Jonathan Edwards said, treating others with scorn and contempt is one of the worst and most offensive manifestations of pride. End quote. And so, so what's the cure for this theological pride? Well, the cure for all forms of pride, whether spiritual pride or theological boasting, the cure is to forget about yourself and to look to Christ, to be consumed with Christ rather than self. You don't become humble by focusing on becoming humble. You become humble by forgetting about becoming humble and setting your mind and your affections on Christ. I know that's paradoxical, but it's the only way to begin to get at what has to happen. Humility is the result of wanting Christ even more than you want humility. You have to want Jesus above all so that he consumes everything in you. Remember C.S. Lewis's point that it's, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And so you have to look to Jesus to do that. You have to want Jesus. Humility will happen when you want him more than anything. Christ, you see, is the embodiment of humility. Sort of humility incarnate. So when you fix your eyes on him, you're fixing your eyes on humility in the flesh. As we know him through the scriptures and by his spirit. And really what's, what's amazing to think about in all of this meditation is that Jesus had and has zero theological pride. Of all people that you might think could get away with it, right? He has zero theological pride. He has no superiority complex. He doesn't look down on anyone. He doesn't look down on you, even though he's infinitely better than you and infinitely more knowledgeable than you. The cure to spiritual pride is to be more about Jesus 
than you are about your theology. And so in light of verses 27 to 30, in light of the, the last two, these last two sermons on spiritual and theological pride, who do you look down on? I, I mean, think of a name right now. I, I think we can all do that. Or a group of people. Who do you look down on? Who do you think that you're better than? I mean, you wouldn't say it that way, but you, you kind of know it. Who do you despise? I mean, look at your conversation with your closest friends or your spouse. That'll, that'll say a lot here. It may be a family member or maybe a parent or an in-law whose sin against God or against the family seems worse than all of your sins combined. And so you're kind of justified in talking about it. Over the years, you've become more in tune with their sins than your own. It, it may be people on the internet who are constantly airing wrong theological conclusions and leading people astray. And you need to come in and, you know, and rescue them. It could be someone who's hurt you and you're convinced that they're worse than you and you're better than they are. You'd never sink that low. And you're constantly needing to reinforce this belief about their inferiority and your superiority. Wherever it exists, whatever it is, whatever the issue, locate your pride. Name it. Confess it specifically. Name the people to God. Name the emotions, the thoughts that you think about this person or these people. Get detailed and then repent. And then know that you're forgiven and quickly turn your, your gaze on Jesus. Your spiritual health and likely your physical health depends on this. And then meditate long and hard on Paul's powerful words on humility in Philippians 2, 3 to 11. This is how I know, it was one of the ways I know that Jesus did, didn't have any spiritual or theological pride, any pride of any kind, no superiority complex, because listen to what Paul says in closing from Philippians 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each, to, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this humility is the same humility Jesus had. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped for his own purposes. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh God, we 
need your help in becoming like Jesus. Transform us by your Spirit. Continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Conforming us into the image of your Son and our Savior, the humble servant, Jesus Christ. Amen.